0: One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases. And it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Nosworthy. Hey guys, welcome back to the Inflammation Nation podcast. As you get ready to launch into 2023, I want you to consider something that I think will be very helpful to you. And, and I take this from the way that I go through a potential client's history when someone reaches out to me, say for one-on-one coaching, and I have to say that this is something that your medical doctor probably doesn't think about, mostly because they don't have the time. And if you don't know this already, the national average for how much time you get to spend with your doctor is about 15 minutes. And, and that's the average, right? Which means that some are, are quite a bit shorter and some are, are much longer, but the average across the nation here in the U.S. is about 15 minutes. And on top of that, most people actually wait longer in the in the waiting room to see their medical provider than they actually do with their medical provider talking about their problems. And, and of course I know that that's frustrating. And again, that's the average in the U S and it might vary from country to country. Some might be worse. Some might be a little bit better, but over the last 27 years of my career, I've worked with clients from all over the U S from some in Canada, the UK, Spain, Sweden, Australian, and I hear the same things over and over again. Right, frustrations that it takes forever to get to see their doctors, if they even see the doctor, and not a staff person. And and they complain that their doctors are distracted. They feel rushed. Um, they feel like they don't or or can't ask questions, and that their doctor isn't really listening to them, uh, not treating them like an individual person, and not seeing them as a whole person rather than just say a system or, or a specific body part. And this is almost a universal complaint and problem in conventional medicine. And there are, of course, many exceptions to that, but that's generally true. But to be fair, we shouldn't really blame the doctors themselves. It's more the system than it is the individual players. But back to my point, is that when you're trying to figure out the root cause of your health issues, several things are important to consider. One is to have the right diagnostic strategy. And if you didn't catch it last month, I I went through a fairly extensive list of labs that I personally would and would not spend my own money on. And for the labs that I think do have some value, I sorted them into different tiers, right? Tier one being uh, the test that pretty much everybody needs to consider and, and, you know, things like a very good set of blood work, for example, to get a handle on your core metabolic systems. And you can go out and check out that series if you haven't already. But another thing that's really important is it's to really know your history. And it might sound strange, but a lot of people don't. They When I ask them questions about the history of a particular complaint or something that may have happened to them in their younger years related to their health, they, they really don't know. But just like anything else, that's a spectrum. Like on one end, you have people who maintain their own medical records, like they have their own copy. They might organize them into binders and and sort them with tabs according to year or type of doctor that they see. They might even journal on a daily basis about their health, about things that are working and not working, things that help them and things that affect them negatively. They, in, in other words, there are some people who are very in tune with their bodies and they can tell that something's off or how a particular choice whether that's diet or lifestyle, for example, how that choice makes them feel and how it it helps them to function. But at the other end of the spectrum are those people who are not very in tune with their bodies, like stuff is happening, but they can't sort it out or they can't put their finger on it. Or when asked a question, a specific question, they don't really have a good clear answer. They might know that they have triggers that flare them up, but they can't distinguish one from the other. And when I ask them, about how certain things affect them. They just don't know. And they might say something like, well, it seems like everything is a trigger. And that could be true as well. But it's not like one group is smarter than the other, right? There's actually maybe a, a neurological basis to this. One of the functions of the brain is called interoception. Interoception, and it's essentially the brain's ability to know what's going on inside your body, particularly with your organ system. We have, for example, what's called a somatic topic map, but basically a picture of the body in the brain that connects the body to the brain for sensation. That's how someone can touch your foot and you know that it's your foot and not your hand. Uh, We also have connections between the brain's somatic topic map that represents the muscles so that when you go to raise your hand, you don't kick your leg out. And we also have this connection with, um, with a, a, let's call it a somatic topic map. It's actually a viscerotopic map, a map of the organ system. And the understanding, the brain's understanding of what's happening in the body in that sense is called interoception. And the part of the brain that's responsible for this is closely tied to other functions, things like compassion and empathy um, to know when social norms have been violated and to be upset about those things and, and even things like emotional processing. And there's a whole bunch more, but those things that, that seem to be relevant to what I, I'm thinking about want to communicate with you today. Now, if you've ever known someone who gets these, like we talk about people who have gut reactions, like something something's wrong and you get this deep visceral gut emotional reaction. You might know someone who is deeply empath- empathetic And for lack of a better way of saying it, identifies with the pain of the world. And some people might say to you, you know, hey, I feel your pain. They may actually mean it. People actually feel emotional responses when they look at the suffering of other people. And these people tend to have a greater awareness of their bodies than other people do. And it's not right or wrong. It's just simply a reflection of neurobiological development. All of our brains are the same in many respects in terms of their framework, their design, how they operate. But all of our brains are different because a very significant portion of your brain and my brain is developmental. It's how our brain has developed neurological pathways and developed plasticity and certain functions over all the years that we've been alive and practicing this thing called life. Now, most of this interoception, this brain's awareness of what's happening in your body is It's subconscious. And interoceptive processing involves multiple brain structures. It's not just one place in the brain, but this includes a, let's call it a relay station or a processing station in the brainstem that's abbreviated the NTS. It's called the the nucleus tractus solitarius or the solitary nucleus. Not that you need to know that, but that's just the name of this main processing center. And within this this, uh, solitary nucleus, there are nerve fibers for the fairly well-known vagus nerve. And I'm pretty sure that you've heard about that by now. This is part of the brain-gut connection. It's not just the brain-gut connection. It's actually the brain-visceral system connection. And this is a two-way information highway that connects your brain to your gut, to your liver, to your pancreas, to every organ system in your body, and vice versa. Again, the information flows in both directions. This interoceptive function and this solitary nucleus is also connected to what's called the paraventricular nucleus of a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. And this is where you have your control center for your thyroid and for your adrenal system and for your reproductive organs. And this NTS system or this interoceptive processing system ends up in the brain in what's called the insular cortex. And this is a deep fold of your higher brain that literally contains this map of all your organs. And so the more well-developed this part of your brain is, the more connected you are to your body, the more connected are you to how it feels and how you how it functions, and the easier it is for you to change a behavior, make a choice, and understand what the impact is or has been for you, the easier it is for you to answer questions about your health history and about the things that are plaguing you that you're either trying to fix yourself or, or maybe want some help with. So again, this is one aspect of why some people are more in tune with their bodies than others. Again, not good or bad, has nothing to do with character or intelligence or whether or not someone values their health and wellness. So when I do a a consultation, an initial consultation with a potential client, sometimes I can get a very accurate picture of what's going on and what led up to where they are now just simply by interviewing them, asking them questions and getting answers. And in that picture... I usually find clues as to what the root causes are and where we should start to focus our efforts, especially as it relates to what kind of tests that we're going to run to, to figure out truly what the root cause is, right? Which tests are we going to run to dig deeper, to look in places that other people have not looked, Again, answers that they haven't found at this point. But what if you're not that in tune? What if you're not that really self-aware type of person? What if you don't have that deep-seated connection and you can't always sort stuff out or answer questions when someone like me comes out and says, well, tell me how this started and how it developed. Does that mean that you can't figure things out or that I as a doctor can't help you? No, not really, not at all. And first of all, you know, most people don't exist at the extremes that I just described, right? On one, one hand, the person who is actually viscerally affected at the pains of other people who keeps a daily journal, and on the other side, someone who's just, you know, for lack of a better term, clueless, not in the sense of stupid, but I just don't know. Most people don't live at those extremes. Most people have some degree of awareness of their bodies, and it might be more well-developed in some senses than others. Plus, if you combine that with the fact that pretty much all healthcare providers are trained to one degree or another in history-taking, right we're trained to ask specific questions almost as like an investigative journalist for example we we ask questions maybe about your childhood or your social influences or your family history your habits or you know whatever your chief complaints are of course and and when we ask about chief complaints we are trained to ask a series of questions that give us into insight into how something started like the onset what what makes it better what makes it worse and so on and that gives us a fairly accurate picture, as long as we can get some decent information coming back from the in the form of the answers to the questions that we ask. But what most doctors are not trained in, this is a failure of the system, the education system, in my, my viewpoint. Most docs are not trained in, in critical or lateral thinking. Some people are naturally very good at that. And they can connect dots and think strategically in ways that others can't. It is a skill that can be developed. So if you have a doctor who doesn't think critically. It doesn't mean they can't, just means they haven't, but they can certainly learn to do so. And so you might have two doctors interviewing or doing a, a history and consultation with the same person, use the exact same questions and intake forms and come away with two very different ideas of what's going on with you and where to start. And most of us as practitioners, including myself, we have our biases. We tend to think in certain ways and Our perceptions of what's going on might be colored by our educational background, our training, and our individual and, say, unique experiences in practice. And it's my opinion that the truly best clinicians are the ones who do everything that they can to break out of their own molds and to think differently, to think out of the box, so to speak. Now, there are two things that I have found to be truly helpful in understanding my own clients and choosing a starting point. And I want to share that with you because you can do this on your own. You don't need me to walk you through that. And it might help you get a better understanding of how things develop to where you are today. The first thing is to walk through your health in a timeline fashion. And I usually do that by decades. So we talk about their health during their first 10 years of, of life, during their teens, during their 20s, during their 30s, and so on. And that can often give great insight, again, into how things develop and and especially how they interconnect over time. And so for your own benefit, again, if you've never sat down and written out your health timeline, it can be quite revealing because you can see the flow. You can see the transitions from one state to the next or how things blossom and mushroom and, and can get radically worse at different stages of life. Now, that doesn't necessarily really apply when you've been most of healthy, mostly healthy all of your life up until a certain point where there was, say, an obvious change. For example, let's say someone is a 30-something-year-old female who eats well and exercises, or has most of her life and historically on no medications, and then she had her second child. She went her thyroid went bad, and she was diagnosed with hypothyroidism and put on thyroid meds and and that's a, actually a very common picture and In terms of a timeline, there's not much there. there's not much history. I was healthy up until a certain point. But most of the people that I work with, and I tend to work with more complicated cases, um they don't have such short histories. Many of them struggled with some things in their youth, perhaps in their childhood, and it seems like there was always something there that just kind of took off the edge, took the edge off their quality of life and their health. And and that's what I call a pattern. So the first thing you want to do heading into 2023 is to sit down and decade by decade write out your health history in a timeline fashion. Use bullet points instead of writing a paragraph. It's just easier to keep things organized. Um, And if you do it in like a word processor, you can cut and paste and you can rearrange things as they start coming to your mind. Um, And you can put in detail, as much detail as you want, but the point is to have, to end up with a bullet point list starting from your first 10 years of life to up to wherever you are right now so that you can see in any given decade what happened. And then you can look at the whole picture. You can zoom in and look at a specific time frame. You can zoom out and you can see the flow over a period of time. And again, this seems to be very useful. So that's a pattern. I'm sorry. That's, a, that's the timeline. The, the next thing to do is to look for two things. One being a pattern and the other things being pivot points. So let me explain a little bit more about patterns. A pattern is something that you may have struggled with for a long time. And if someone that I'm coaching says that they've suffered from something as long as they can remember, then that's a pattern. And it can be anything, right? It can be gut issues. It can be their thyroid. It can be sleep problems. It can be mood issues. And if you write your timeline properly, you can see how it ebbs and flows over time. And typically, the patterns will become evident. For example, let's say that I'm just going to pick depression as an example. Let's say that they realized, well, I was depressed when I was 14 years old. Now, if that depression came and went, that was an event in that decade, but if it was something that they struggled with through their teens and the 20s and 30s, then that depression should show up in each decade. And that's how we spot patterns. This is not just an event. It wasn't a blip. It's a recurring theme that has been there for a sufficient period of time for us to call it a pattern. Here's an example. I, I worked with a younger woman a few years ago who had a thyroid issue. She was tired all the time, had a hard time losing weight, a very common picture. And she also noted anxiety and insomnia. And, I, and now her main concern was her thyroid, but as part of her history, it came out that she had some anxiety and insomnia. That got worse when her thyroid was diagnosed or around the same time. And when I asked when her anxiety and insomnia started, she said, oh, I've been like that my whole life. Now, at that point, when you hear people say, I've been like that my whole life, it seems evident to me that in most cases they have just assumed that that's not a problem. It's how I am. I've learned how to cope. I'm still generally okay and it's almost if they, as if they have redefined what normal means to them. It's normal for me to be anxious. It's normal for me to not be able to sleep at night. But usually there's more meaning to that. So I asked for more details. And it turned out that she was nervous even as a child. And as we talked more, it, it became clear that her anxiety started quite young because she grew up in, in what I call a high-performing household. Right, Her parents weren't abusive. But they set very high standards for school, for sports, for personal conduct and so on. And so she grew up under the pressure of these very high expectations that she had to deal with on a on a daily basis. So and she started not sleeping well in high school. She was constantly worried about her performance at school. She was worried about her future. And if she was doing enough to succeed and underneath all that, was she making her parents proud of her? And even though she was generally healthy through her college years and early in the in her career, she always had this underlying nervousness, right, that would sometimes rise to the level of, you know, what we might call true anxiety. She never slept well. She would lie in bed at night. Her mind would race. And even after she managed to fall asleep, she woke up quite frequently. And that affected her waking state, like she got up to work or to go to work every day so tired she feels like she could just lie back down and and try to go to sleep again. So she had a career, she got married, she had a baby, and she juggled her career and her family life somewhat successfully for several years until she started having to make concessions to her diet and to her lifestyle. And so she stopped exercising at some point, she started stress eating, and before she knew it, she was heavier and she was more tired, she was more anxious, she was pregnant with her second child, and within a month of delivery, everything became dramatically worse. Her pregnancy weight wasn't coming off; she was even more tired than ever before, and now she was waking up in the middle of the night with full blown panic attacks, night sweats, heart palpitations, the whole nine yards and That's when her m d did some labs and said, "Oh, you've got hypothyroidism and so he prescribed synthroid as they do and and that was it. There was no discussion of her anxiety no focus on her insomnia it was just assumed that her current issues were all tied to her thyroid and they were to a certain degree but not from the perspective of causation right her thyroid issue didn't cause her anxiety and insomnia because they were a pattern and a problem for at least two decades before her thyroid went bad and she got diagnosed her thyroid however did exacerbate her it, her pattern it exacerbated and made worse her anxiety, and her insomnia, but her pattern of those things preceded her thyroid. And this is the power of looking for patterns, right? It can help you sort out cause and effect. Sometimes you can't, but quite often you can. It can help you see the pre-existing metabolic states and challenges that your body was dealing with already and before whatever watershed event made things take a turn for the worse. And that knowledge can help you in understanding the big picture, how things are connected, and choosing the right diagnostic tests. Now, many times, whatever pattern you have, whatever you struggle with long before things got really bad, actually set you up for whatever that thing is. Now, in this case, I I just described, we have to ask, what is the metabolic impact of long-term anxiety and insomnia? And more specifically, what impact do these things have, not just on the thyroid system, and thyroid hormone balance. What impact do these things have, meaning anxiety and insomnia, on the regulation of immune responses? Because ultimately at the end, and especially if you've listened to to some of my earlier podcasts where we talk about the thyroid specifically, you'll know that almost all cases of hypothyroidism have an underlying cause of autoimmunity. It's called Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. So when it comes to autoimmunity, like Hashimoto's, but this rule applies to all autoimmune diseases, it takes on average about 10 years from the time the immune system starts misbehaving to when someone actually gets formally diagnosed as having a problem. And so what's happening in the decade before the formal diagnosis is critical because it's almost always linked into immune dysfunction and immune dysregulation. Now, I don't want to turn this into a a discussion on Hashimoto specifically, but suffice it to say that your emotionality plays a huge role in immune system function. Bottom line is that your mindset and your emotionality are linked directly to your immune system and exerts a significant influence, either for the better or for the worse. So things like negativity, pessimism, This nervous predisposition, full-blown anxiety, even depression, can either be precursors to autoimmunity, setting you up for failure, so to speak, or in some cases, they can be a consequence of it. If someone never had it before, then they were diagnosed with an autoimmunity, they might get it afterwards. But in most cases, these things will be patterns that are present before the autoimmunity hits, predisposing you to the autoimmunity, which then turns around and makes the things that were pre-existing worse as a result of the autoimmunity. Now on the flip side, optimism, positive thinking, having a sense of purpose in life, being part of a a community that's larger than you are, having well-defined goals and a clear picture of who you are and who you know you want to be, having a sense of determination to be that person, all promotes immune control and competence, which is only beneficial from an immunological standpoint. So understanding your patterns and the role that they play in where you are today is critical. So, so far we've talked about creating your health timeline and looking at your history decade by decade in a bullet point item by item list so that you can zoom in, get details, zoom out and see the bigger picture. And look for patterns. Look for things that show up in each decade prior to the point, wherever that is, where you feel like things got dramatically worse and you started having, say, more bad days than good days. Now, what's next? Pivot points. But we're going to have to save that for the next episode. So I want to remind you that from now until the end of January 2023, you can schedule an initial consultation with me at a reduced price. It's a special offer only for listeners of this podcast. The link is in the episode description. Please remember to comment, rate, like, and follow here and on social media. And why don't you share this episode with someone that you love who needs to hear this information as well. I'll see you guys in the next episode.